0: Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word comes from the book of Jude this morning. Jude chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, as we approach this, your word, having heard it read now, we ask for the Holy Spirit to come, to be both the opener of our hearts and our guide into the wonderful things that we are to behold from this, your word. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we have no ability on our own to behold what it is that you would have us see. And so we come before you humbly, we come before you needy, but we come before you eager and expectant, because we know that you are a father who loves to give good gifts to his children. And so, Father, as we come to ask you for bread, we can rest assured you won't give us a snake or a scorpion, but that you will indeed give us exactly what it is that we need. Would you now calm our hearts and our spirits? Would you bind any evil spirit who would seek to distract us? Would you keep our minds stayed upon you? Would you provide for us the control of the flesh? And would you now open up our ears and our hearts that we would be transformed by this, your word. Come now, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was probably six or eight weeks ago now that a a group of us, probably 30 or 40, gathered in this room to reflect on, to study together a wonderful, pivotal book that was written in the early part of the 20th century called Christianity and Liberalism. It was a book that was written by a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen. That name will ring a bell for some of you. He was the founder of what has been known as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And also uh, the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was, before he was those two things, a professor of New Testament, at Princeton Theological Seminary from 1906 to 1929. While he was there, he saw that great institution known for its holding to the Orthodox Christian faith. He saw it drift to the left. He saw it leave the moorings of the biblical truths that so many of us in this room right now hold dear, truths like the virgin birth. Truths like the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Truths like the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only means by which we may be saved. These fundamental, we might say, apostle creed-like doctrines were being lost. As J. Greshel Machen was seeking to faithfully teach New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary, it became quite clear that his voice stayed upon the word rooted in doctrinal conviction that is gleaned directly from that word was not going to be welcome for much longer at Princeton. And he lost that battle in 1929. He left Princeton to found Westminster to start the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and he wrote that wonderful little book, Christianity and Liberalism, that describes a Christianity that in our own day, I think, is in many ways waning. He says, I've written this book because in our day, many describe Christianity as merely a life that is to be lived. But Christianity is not a life as distinguished from doctrine. Instead, it is exactly the other way around. Christianity is a life that is founded on doctrine. It is what we believe that gives shape to who we are and who it is that we become. To lose that founding for J. Gresham Matron was to lose the very foundations of the faith itself. It's popular in our own day and time to say things like that. You know, Christianity is not really about doctrine. It's not really about truth, it's about a relationship. It's about life, it's about living, it's about doing good to others. The problem with that statement is that it's both and, not either or. Is that it is, all, it is a life, and it is a relationship, and it is about doing good to others, but not in a social gospel kind of way, but in a biblical gospel kind of way that speaks to the very foundations of the faith. Machen believed that the posture of the Christian life has got to be one in which is willing to fight for the fundamental truths of the faith. He says it is impossible to call oneself a true soldier of Jesus Christ and to not be willing to fight for the faith. Now, I believe that what Machen was seeking to do in his own day in the early part of the 20th century is what Jude was seeking to do in the latter part of the first century. And that is to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, which is the key verse for this entire book. It's not the letter that Jude wanted to write. He makes that known to us there in verse 3. He wanted to simply revel in the common salvation that we share together, to simply enjoy the doctrines that we have all embraced. But as he began to look at this local church, he said, the reality is I see them adrift. I see them under attack. I see the infiltration of false teaching. And it is pivotal. I am compelled to write a different letter than the one I'd like to write. I must write to you, as we described last week, I must write to you a military memo. I must write to you as one who must now gird up the loins, to use the language of the Old Testament, and get ready to do battle for the sake of the faith. That's what Jude is writing here. We said last week we believe that that kind of posture And that kind of letter is the exact kind of letter that must be written to Christians in North America at the time in which we live. For this is not a time where we can remain silent and stick our heads in the sand as if all was right in the world. And this is also not a time for us to stir the cultural pot and to continue to fight foolish skirmishes on the world's terms. Instead, we have to learn to fight for the faith in the way that Peter describes it in 1 Peter 3, to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you with gentleness and with respect. To be those who give a living apologetic, both with our life and with our lip, for the defense of the gospel so that the watching world is compelled by the believability and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we want to be. And I believe that's what God has called us to to be. And I believe that's what Jude is training us to become. Now with all of that in mind, I want to look at this passage with you. Just two verses, specifically verses 3 and 4. But I want to look at them in three different ways with you. As we together receive this military memo from Jude and get ready to go to the front lines and contend for the faith of the gospel, we've got to know these three things. We've got to know first the battle that we're waging. We've got to know first the battle that we're waging. We've got to know secondly the enemy that we're facing. We've got to know secondly the enemy that we're facing. And thirdly, we have to know the victory that we're assured. Thirdly, we have to know the victory… That we're assured. The battle we're waging, the enemy we're facing, and thirdly, the victory that we're assured. Let's start with the battle that we're waging. The short answer for what is the battle that we're waging is a battle for faith. That's how Jude describes it here in verse three. He says that we are those who are content to be contending for the faith that was once delivered. For all the saints. Now, that Greek word contend, we said last week, is a word that evokes military conflict or is often used within an athletic context. This means that it is a word that is used when we are going toe to toe with someone who is described as our opponent. It is a word from which we get the English word agony. Agonismi is the root word for this word contend. It means that we're called to fight for faith with an intensity, with a willingness to agonize. Uh, Meaning there's not an anticipation that we're going to walk out onto the field of battle or that we're going to step into an athletic contest and it's going to be easy and that we're going to make it look easy. But instead, we are going to go out there as those who anticipate agonizing. And those who say to ourselves confessedly, we are willing to suffer for the faith. That question must be on the heart of Jude as he's writing to a church that is experiencing outwardly cultural pressures and the risk of persecution and inward infiltration of false teaching, that these are people who are about to enter into conflict. They are going to have to confront things that are within their midst and they're going to have to learn to contend, as a Christian should, for the essential truths of the faith. This week I actually met with a trainer I know some of you are thinking, it's about time that you met with a trainer. I know, very kind friend of, of mine um, hooked me up with a great trainer in the area, and this first training session was to assess my physical strength. And let me tell you, as I was sitting there doing planks and sit-ups and push-ups and Using those ropes, you know what I'm talking about, those ropes? Oh, they're terrible. They're evil. You know what I was experiencing? Agonismi is what I was experiencing. I was in conflict with my own body in doing that activity. But the reason that I was there was because I believed that what I was stepping into was worth doing for the future that I see in view. We are willing to suffer if we see and have a vision for and a preciousness in our mind's eye for the thing of which we are pursuing. We will contend for the faith to the degree that we are captured by the beauty of the faith. To the degree that we are renewed in vision for what it is that we are fighting for and when that is captured captured our minds we're willing to say oh yes I will suffer I will push through I will experience the agony of because I know that the agony is the painfulness that leads to the pleasant that leads to the growth that leads to the harvest fruit of righteousness as James descri- describes what exactly the nature of true discipline really is. We are called here to contend for the faith. Now, this word faith is the word pistos in the Greek. It can mean several things. It can mean personal trust in Christ. We sometimes use it that way as a profession of faith. I have faith in Christ, and we're describing our personal or subjective trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We could give a litany of examples in the Bible where the term is used that way, but that's not how Jude is using the term here. Notice Jude is laboring, is telling us to contend not for our faith or for your faith, but for the faith. He's using it in an objective way, not a subjective way. In other words, Jude is talking about the content of the faith, not the subjective experience of trusting in Christ or in the faith. In other words, he's calling us to contend for the truth of the faith the truth of the faith for the foundations for what the faith is built on he wants the contention to be for the objective absolute authoritative truth of the word of god that's what he wants us to contend for he's speaking about dusty old doctrine. The faith once delivered to the saints. That which has been passed down to you from the lips of Jesus. That which was given to you by the apostles. In the way that Paul writes to Timothy. That he would be a servant of the Lord who follows the pattern of sound words that have been spoken to you. In other words, you know what Paul is saying to Timothy? Timothy, I'm not asking you to be really creative And decide how it is you want to share the good news. I want you to use the very words that I used and deliver them the very same way. It's really important that teachers of the Word of God understand that they are the delivery boys of a word that's already been given. They're not the editors or the writers of a new word that they want to give. That's fundamentally different. And it's very tempting It's very tempting. In fact, the hard part about the faith is not to get jazzed about whatever has come lately. It's about staying put on what has always been. That's the hard part of the faith. And Jude sees it. It's why in every single generation we're fighting for the faith. The battle for the Bible, the battle for essential truths of the faith, the battle for what it is that the Bible teaches is never over. That's why the Bible's metaphor for the calling of the Christian life is one who is contending continuously for the faith, that which is the central teaching of the Word of God. Now, here's what I think you need to hear and I think we need to receive from Jude because this is not how we normally think about it. He says, we are to contend for the faith and you might have had the the thought cross through your mind, well, I think that's why I've got a pastor and I think that's why I've got elders. Have not these men been put in place for the very purpose of safeguarding the truth of the Word of God. And if that thought crossed your mind, you would be absolutely right. Let me commend that to you. When you look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and many other teachings regarding elders in the body of Christ, it's very clear that they are there to be men who hold the faith with clear conscience and who are able to teach that faith with clarity and with consistency derived from the Word of God. That's the call of an elder. But friends, you and I both know pastors and elders can go awry. I gave you the story of J. Gresham Machin for a reason. Here he is in an institution, in a denomination, with many pastors and with many elders who over the course of time begin to rest back on their laurels, be influenced by the cultural winds, be infiltrated by false teaching, and before they know it, they are far afield for anything that would be called traditional Orthodox Christianity. That's what happens, and here's what I want you to hear. Jude is not talking to elders. He could be, and it would be appropriate for him to be, but who's the audience that Jude is talking to? He's talking to you. He's talking to every single one of us. He's talking to every Christian. Have you received personal responsibility and are you embracing the call of personal responsibility to be a man and a woman and a youth and a child if you are professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are you embracing the call to strive for the purity of biblical doctrine in our day Jude lays it at your feet he says this is our call there's not a one of us that escape it some of us might be saying I'm not really very doctrinal Jude is saying get over that that's so what Judah's saying. Well, I, I'm more this way. Well, then get more that way. Judas saying this is a calling of every single one of us. We don't get to pick and choose with regards to the mission of God. He's saying receive that this is part of the call. Will all of us manifest it the same way? Absolutely not. Some of us may write books to that end. Some of us may speak directly. Some of us may just hold fast to the faith and be a witness to the next generation with the children in our home. There's many, many ways where we're holding the line and standing firm in the gospel and contending for its faith. But the fact of the matter is you don't get to choose whether or not you want to do it or not. It's a part of the mission of following Christ. that We together contend for the purity of biblical doctrine in our day. This is the battle we're waging. This is the battle we're waging. We are waging a battle for faith. Now let's look secondly at the enemy we're facing. The enemy we're facing. This kind of answers the question why Jude is writing this epistle. And the enemy that we're facing, the enemy that Jude is facing, is the enemy of false teaching. Look at verse 4. For certain people who have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The reason we must contend for the, the faith, the truth, in our day is that false teaching is constantly, perpetually waging within the body of Christ at various levels. It could be within a local body, it could be within a denomination, it could be within the Catholic, the large universal church of God in the world. At various levels, false teaching is making their way, their inroads into the body of Christ. And he tells us here, we need to note a couple of things about false teaching so that we can be prepared to face this enemy. If this is the battle we're waging, this is the enemy we're facing, we need to know something about them. And look at how he describes it. He says that certain people have crept in unnoticed. I want you to see the first indicator of those who are false teachers and how they get into the church. The thing that Jude says is that number one, they're sneaky. They're sneaky. He could have used, they walk in through the front door. They come with a, with a horn and a bell to describe their presence, but that's not the way he describes them. He describes those who crept in unnoticed. In other words, they go around the back door when the, when the flanks are on um, rest and on break and they slip in unnoticed among the people of God. Jesus described this and he said that this would happen multiple places throughout the gospel that there will be those who are wolves who are showing up in the body of Christ and they're looking like sheep. People who are kind and sweet and nice. They talk like a Christian. They walk like a Christian. But as you begin to listen to them and you begin to Pay closer attention to them, you begin to see that they're a degree off from what it is that the Bible is teaching, then they're two degrees off, and then they're three degrees off from what the Bible's teaching. He says they kid in because there is a sneakiness, there is an unnoticedness, there is a guard down that's a part of the way false teaching infiltrates the church. They are, as it were, spiritual terrorists that are laying minefields of doctrinal subversion that the people of God are walking around unaware are being laid within the context of a local church. And what happens is those who are ill-equipped doctrinally or unprepared biblically begin to be tantalized by the teaching of such false teachers. So we need to know false teaching doesn't come with a billboard out front. It comes surreptitiously Within the body of Christ, which means that it's often more difficult to weed out. And it oftentimes takes a little time and a lot of listening. But once it becomes clear that something is awry, it must be called out and it must be rooted out. He says, so you need to know, you need to anticipate, it's going to come that way. But the second way that false teachers and false teaching comes is it comes with a high level of plausibility. It comes with a high level of plausibility. Notice how Jude describes the false teaching in his day. He says they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. False teaching is plausible and you usually hear it and on the, on the front you go, that sounds right. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I've never, I've never thought of it quite that way. But that seems to ring have the ring of plausibility or the ring of truth about it. And the reason it does is because false teaching almost never comes in as wholly false, but it comes in as a half truth. It comes in as a half truth. Notice this language of, of, Jude, of, of Jude in this text. He says they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. They didn't come in with a new message, <laughs> they didn't come in saying everything you've ever believed about Jesus is wrong. That'd be pretty clear we would show that person to the door fairly quickly they came in going you know what this grace of God that you guys have embraced it is awesome and I'm right there with you in it now as we think about this grace of God let me show you something you might not have seen before that arises out of it oh okay that's how it works it leeches off of that which you already believe it's parasitic in that nature and that's the reason that it makes it very strong It's because you begin to hear it and you begin to listen to it. It subtracts a little bit here. It adds a little bit there. It it implies something over in this direction. It directs in another direction. It leaves things that ought to be said unsaid. It's the kind of thing that happens in Genesis chapter 3. When the serpent comes up to Eve. And he really asks Eve to give him kind of an accounting of what it is that God said about this tree and... He didn't immediately say, yeah, everything that God said was wrong about it. But hey, did he also tell you this? Well, he should have also told you that. There's more to this tree. It's not not that everything's wrong. It's just that there's more. And we see Eve very quickly beginning to imbibe that by the way in which she reflects back to the serpent. She doesn't simply describe to the serpent, yes, the Lord told us that we're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What else does she add to that instruction? But we are also not to touch it. Well, if you look back at the accounting, God never said you couldn't touch it. He just said you couldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You go, well, that seems subtle. It's just one degree off. That's how it begins. It's sneaky, but it's plausible. And before you know it, it's completely outside of the scope of what is really truthful, biblical Christianity. Now in this context here with Jude, Jude is addressing a doctrine that says of the grace of God that led into sensuality. I hope that you can almost hear what must have been the truth that's still very prevalent in our day to day. If if I were to say to you that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, hopefully you would say, Amen. Amen. And if I were to say to you that there is nothing good or bad, if you are in Christ Jesus, that you could ever do to compromise God's love for you, I hope that you would say, amen. And then if I were to say, since that's the case, it doesn't really matter how we live. I hope you would say, no way, Jose. But could you see how that can naturally follow? In fact, Paul dresses that in Romans 6. He's just unfolded the beautiful gospel, and he has said, Listen, we are indeed those who have been saved in Christ. We are justified by faith. We are robed in the righteousness of Jesus. He's just shown that in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 6, he addresses the question that's lingering in the mind and the heart of his readers. He says, if that's the case, if we are loved this deeply, if the gospel is this much good news, if it's this radical in terms of his commitment to us, why don't we just sin so that grace may abound? Why don't we just sin so the grace may be And You remember Paul's answer in Romans 6 may it never be. By no means. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Let the members of your body be used as instruments of righteousness and not instruments of wickedness. Do you see what happens when the grace of God really gets into the heart? of God's people is our heart begins to turn and change and fall in love with the things that are good and right and true that are emblematic and exemplary of our Savior. And we are drawn unto those not merely because we have to follow a bunch of rules arbitrarily but because now we see the commandments of God is our happy choice. It's our pattern of freedom to be conformed more into the one who has saved us and loved us in the way that he has. That change and transformation of heart is absolutely essential to the radical embrace of grace in our lives. But for those who receive grace and use it as a measure of license in the sensuality, language that you'll see later in the book of Jude describes clearly sexual immorality and all kind of licentiousness. It's been a tendency in the Christian church since Jude's day to use grace and abuse grace. We can't can't reject a radical view of grace because people will abuse it. We have to preach the radical gospel and know that there will be those who are false teachers and those who misunderstand the teaching that will use it to their destruction. But when we see that within the context of the church, he wants us to know it's got to be called out. We've got to contend for the purity of the biblical doctrine of the grace of God. There's a wonderful quote by C.H. Spurgeon where he says discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. That often is pretty easy, to be quite honest. But discernment is knowing the difference between that which is right and almost right. That which is right and almost right, close to right, half-truthed, plausible, but not quite. And the recognition here, he says, when you live this way... When you live in a way of sensuality that goes against the direct commands of the Lord Jesus Christ and the twisted or the perversion of grace is used within the life of believers, what you are essentially becoming is a person who denies the lordship of Jesus Christ. You deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what he says here in this passage. Those who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Now you can deny your Lord and Master Jesus Christ two ways. You can deny him doctrinally, which is when we say he is just simply not our Lord and Savior. He is not the Lord and Savior. He is not the Son of God, which is how we would deny him with our mouths professedly, doctrinally. But you know practically how we deny the Lord Jesus Christ? How how do we regularly deny the Lord Jesus Christ every week in our lives that we've got to become repenting repenters on? We just don't do what he says to do. If He's our Lord and He says, do this, and we don't, we deny His Lordship. We're saying, no, I'd rather do it another way. (laughs) No, I I think I'd like to do it this way. Here's what happens, and this is why I don't want you to, to think, oh, I'd never deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Most people who do wind up denying the Lord Jesus Christ and leaving the faith never intend to. What happens is there's a pattern and a habit of heart that's created where we continually and overtly forsake the lordship of of Jesus Christ by not following his commands and then not living a life of repentance. And slowly but surely we begin to drift. We get our ears tantalized by some teaching in the world. And before we know it, we think, you know, yeah, Jesus really is pretty stuffy with all those commands, isn't he? I've kind of found some things in the world that are actually more pleasing to me right now. I, I think God just wants me to be happy and I'm feeling more happy right now. That's how it happens. That's how it happens. And so we have to be on guard. Where is it in our lives right now that you can see in your own heart that you know the Lord has called you to something different? It's clearly written out in black and white in the scriptures. But you are confessedly and regularly traipsing over that line unrepentantly, acting as if his lordship doesn't matter. That's practically denying him. Now here's the wonderful encouragement to you. There's grace for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, for your perpetual rejection of his lordship, it's as true of me as it is for you in the way that we live. But don't let that be a situation or a circumstance that lingers in your life. Come clean in confession and repentance to the Lord Jesus. Put yourself back under his lordship and seek to be attuned to his commands. Draw yourself around with a people Friends, the body of Christ who will rehearse the truth and create accountability. Create an establishment of routine where you can continue to keep yourself faithful and attentive to the words of Jesus. Show yourself, in other words, to be a soldier. To be one who is willing to attend for the faith in your own life. And for the faith in the life that is before us. So the question I want to rise kind of raise to your attention as we kind of draw this to a close, rushing towards the victory that we're assured, not quite there yet, but getting close, is how do we fight the faith? How do we fight for the faith? How do we make the faith something that is the object of our labor day in and day out? I want to give you just a couple of encouragements along those lines. These are practical in nature. The first thing, if you want to be a contender for the faith, is you've got to know the truth of the Word of God. It's the first thing that's got to happen. You've got to know the truth of the Word of God. We've said that the faith mentioned in this text is dealing with the objective truth of the Word of God. That's his focus. How are you going to contend for the truth if you don't know the truth? How are you going to contend for the truth if you don't know the truth. The recognition is we must be a people who know the truth of the Word of God. That's why I said you've got to create a routine, almost like a soldier, a routine of basking in the Word of God and its truth. You've got to to constantly renew your mind in it. Now in just a few weeks after we finish this series on Jude, we're going to take a few weeks to talk about discipleship as we go into the fall, one of the things that we're going to be urging upon all of us is that we would be a people who create godly habits in our pursuit of Christ. Habits are formative to who we become. Habits are formative to who we become. Our thoughts, that give way to our practices, that give way to our habits, they give way to our future. And that's true in the way in which we live our lives, but it's true as true soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we don't know the sword of the Spirit, how are we going to contend for the faith in our day? We've got to know the truth of the Word of God. We're going to study that more, and we're going to talk a little bit more about how to defend that because we live in a time that's relativistic in its view of truth. What would it mean to make it plausible in those times? That's coming. Just a little teaser. We'll be there before too long. But the second thing we have to do in order to contend for the faith in our time, we've got to first know the truth of the Word of God. Secondly, we have to test all things by the truth of the Word of God. We've got to test all things by the truth of the Word of God. This is what I think is really most concerning in our quote-unquote information age. This is a time where you're riding down the street and you're listening to the radio and you're clicking on the internet and there's news articles and there's all kinds of commentary and there's podcasts and there's blogs and there's publishing and there's media and there's just everything imaginable that's coming at you with a remarkable number of messages. How will you know which ones to believe and hold on to? Only those who are in accord with and line up against the truth of the Word of God. So you've got to test those thoughts, those ideas, those practices by what is already revealed in the Word of God. I saw a wonderful little report this week in Time magazine about the renewal and the activity of our brains when we become people who live lives of gratitude you know living a life of gratitude will more than likely increase the activity and the growth of your brain over the course of your life now here's one of the things if i'm taking that report and i'm lining it up against the word of god and jesus is constantly telling me to give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of god for you i can feel pretty sure that it's no surprise to me that biologically that works out well for my brain that makes complete sense to me why because i know exactly what the word says I've tested, I'm testing it by the Word of God. I'm putting it in relationship with the thing that I am engaging in in the world. It's absolutely critical for contending for the faith in our time that we learn to test things by the Word of God. This is why the old historic way of describing the Bible is that it is a rule of faith and practice. That's the language that the Westminster Confession of Faith describes the Bible as our only rule for faith and practice. So let me, let me put this in perspective. Rule is connected to the word ruler. Okay, Ruler, you're thinking throne, big robe, all this. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the little, you know, the little wooden straight edge that you pull out of your desk during math class. I'm talking about that kind of ruler. What is a ruler? What is that kind of ruler? It's a standard. It's a standard by which you know a line is straight. I remember my fourth grade teacher drawing a line on the board and then asking the class, hey, class, is the line straight? We all looked at it and said, yeah, yeah, the line's straight. She gets out her ruler and she shows us that it's actually off from what a true straight line would look like. And then she began to acknowledge, if you're off by minimal degrees and you've not tested that which you are calling straight by, that which is the standard of straightness, then you will constantly be crooked. I was once told by a pilot who says that if you're off just one degree in the flight path, you will drift in your target 92 feet for every mile that you fly. That amounts to one mile off target every 60 miles that you fly. And if you were to start at the equator and fly all around the earth, you would be off the degree of your target by more than 500 miles. You're just one degree off. This is why in Acts chapter 17, the Berean church is celebrated. The Berean Jews were those who were of more notable character. The apostle uh, Paul uh, declared as well as Luke in his writing. For they received the message of the word of God with eagerness. And they examined the scriptures every day to see what Paul was saying to make sure that it was true. We've got to know the truth of the Word of God. We've got to test all things by the truth of the Word of God. And then thirdly, we've got to stand ready to defend the truth of the Word of God. We've already mentioned 1 Peter 3 several times over the course of our service this morning. It's Peter who's writing to a church that's dealing, no surprise, with some persecution, some struggle, and potentially some false teaching. And what he says to them is, Have no fear or be troubled. Don't be overcome by what it is that you see happening around you. But in your hearts, regard Christ as Lord, His Lordship. Regard Christ as Lord, always being prepared, readied to make a defense to anyone who asks for you of reason for the hope that is in you. The reason Peter can say don't be fear, don't be afraid or don't be troubled is Peter knows the outcome. He knows the future because he knows the word of God and he's tested it. And he knows that the end game is Jesus wins and he lives by the light of that. And so when trial comes, he's confident. But in addition to that, secondly, Peter knows that when those attacks come from within and when those attacks come from without, do you know historically what happens to Christianity when it's under attack? It grows and it purifies. It grows and it purifies. That means that we live in the context of a day where the future of Christianity in America in the way that we've conceived of it doesn't look positive but the future of Christianity is looking really bright. Historically. Because it's when you come under attack, when you're questioned, when false teaching begins to arise, that we're forced to clarify what it is that we really believe. Do you know when you're truly committed to the thing that you say you're committed to? When you have to put skin in the game. That's when you know. That's when you know. That's when it becomes real clear. And when persecution comes, when false teaching comes, and confrontation and conflict ensues, that is a place where God loves to flourish Christianity and advance it and purify it. Now that should be no surprise because at the very center of our faith is a conflict. It's called the cross. It was in that conflict against good and evil, against heaven and earth, against the evil one, against God, against our sin, Being satisfied by our Savior on the cross against that cosmic conflict, God was forging for himself a kingdom that is not of this world through a Savior who is not of this world, but one who loves this world and has come to redeem it. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, right the very center of our faith is a conflict that happens on the cross. And you know what? It's a conflict that deals a death blow to the one that we call Savior and Lord. He is laid in the grave and he is there for three days. But it's a conflict that doesn't end in a death blow. It's a conflict that ends in the overcoming of death. Because Jesus on the third day is resurrected from the dead. What this means is that if you are persecuted for the faith, if you are attacked for the faith, if you with skin in the game suffer for the faith, you can rest assured there is a resurrection on the other side of that death. Because it is promised through what has already been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. And so this is why Peter says, have no fear, don't be troubled. This is the victory that you are assured. That he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. That the Jesus who has overcome the grave and right now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven is coming back. And when he does, he will set up a throne of which every single one of his enemies will make up his footstool. That's our future, friends. And so run, run towards the front lines in contending for the faith because the one who has contended for it in its victory has already won. So let the wind of that joy blow through your heart as you go to strive for doctrinal purity, for the gospel in our day. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, confirm these important truths to us. There's a sense of urgency. I, I Truly believe it, Lord, in what it is that we see unfolding on the world's theater and in the confines of our own country. We must be equipped. We must be trained, and only you can do it. So come now and and renew our minds and renew our hearts and invigorate our spirits and call us in deeper, further in and further up, into the work of contending for the faith in our day and glorify Yourself in our efforts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.